Hello and welcome back to Nudie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Tonight I'm reading Ernest Hemingway, an author, Nobel laureate for literature actually, who I have never read before. Many thanks to listener and friend of the pod Jack from New Orleans and Texas for suggesting The Sun Also Rises. My mother never read Hemingway to me, and neither did my father. And for myself, I've never been interested in anything Hemingway was famously interested in. Bullfights, Spanish Civil War, fishing, it all just seemed a bit too old-fashioned for me. I am Gen X. But when Jack suggested The Sun Also Rises from 1926, I did what I always do. I listened to my mate, and then I checked to see if a movie had ever been made of it. Then I watched the movie, and then I read the book. I reiterate, I am Gen X. We are a visual people, and not sorry about it. So the movie version I saw was 1957. Tyrone Power, Ava Gardner, Mel Ferrer and Errol Flynn. And it was great, as you would expect with those folks in it. But the book? Well, I was shocked. You see, Ernest Hemingway was a journalist before he was a novelist, and he never dropped the journalistic practice of using straightforward language and short sentences in his books. So it doesn't matter which of his works you enjoy, there's barely a sentence that's more than four or five words. The writing style is incredibly punchy, a sort of athletic, get-to-the-end-of-the-story modern style but from the 1920s. I think it's been called muscular, and I get it. Hemingway said this about his style. If a writer of prose knows enough about what he is writing about, he may omit things that he knows, and the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one-eighth of it being above water. So, the sun also rises. What's it about? Well, it's a soap opera. A group of international types in Paris go to Spain to watch some bullfights and go fishing and hunting and mess around with unrequited love of a beautiful, racy, independent double divorcee named Lady Brett. I couldn't put it down. It's not that it's a rollicking read, although it is that. It's that there's so little on the page, Hemingway transports the reader actively through sheer speed. All his books can be read go to woe in no time. His works just weren't like other novels of the time, and he wasn't like other authors either. He was married four times and ultimately took his own life by shooting himself, going out the same way that his father went out, which is just tragic all over. He was known as Papa, 
Perhaps because he was a bigger guy and into all that hunting, fishing stuff? Maybe it made him seem fatherly, or at least like a patriarchal figure. There's no real sense I could find of how he came to get that nickname, but apparently he liked it a lot. I'm reading the opening of The Sun Also Rises to give you a sense of Ernest Hemingway's literary speed. Let's begin. Robert Cohn was once middleweight boxing champion of Princeton. Do not think that I am very much impressed by that as a boxing title, but it meant a lot to Cohn. He cared nothing for boxing. In fact, he disliked it. But he learned it painfully and thoroughly to counteract the feeling of inferiority and shyness he felt on being treated as a Jew at Princeton. There was a certain inner comfort in knowing he could knock down anybody who was snooty to him. Although, being very shy and a thoroughly nice boy, he never fought except in the gym. He was Spider Kelly's star pupil. Spider Kelly taught all his young gentlemen to box like featherweights, no matter whether they weighed 105 or 205 pounds. But it seemed to fit Cone. He was really very fast. He was so good that Spider promptly overmatched him and got his nose permanently flattened. This increased Cone's distaste for boxing, but it gave him a certain satisfaction of some strange sort, and it certainly improved his nose. In his last year at Princeton, he read too much and took to wearing spectacles. I never met any one of his class who remembered him. They didn't even remember that he was middleweight boxing champion. I mistrust all frank and simple people, especially when their stories hold together, and I always had a suspicion that Robert Cohn had never been middleweight boxing champion, and that perhaps a horse had stepped on his face, or that maybe his mother had been frightened or seen something, or that he had maybe bumped into something as a young child. But I finally had somebody verify the story from Spider Kelly. Spider Kelly not only remembered Cohn, he had often wondered what had become of him. Robert Cohn was a member, through his father, of one of the richest Jewish families in New York, and through his mother, of one of the oldest. At the military school where he prepped for Princeton, and played a very good end on the football team, no one had made him race conscious. No one had ever made him feel he was a Jew, hence any different from anybody else until he went to Princeton. He was a nice boy, a friendly boy, and very shy, and it made him bitter. He took it out in boxing, and he came out of Princeton with painful self-consciousness and the flattened nose, and was married by the first girl who was nice to him. He was married five years, had three children, lost most of the $50,000 his father left him, the balance of the estate having gone to his mother, hardened into a rather unattractive mould under domestic unhappiness with a rich wife. And just when he had made up his mind to leave his wife, she left him and went off with a miniature painter. As he had been thinking for months about leaving his wife, and had not done it because it would be too cruel to deprive her of himself, her departure was a very healthful shock. The divorce was arranged and Robert Cohn went out to the coast. In California, he fell among literary people, and as he still had a little of the 50000 left, in a short time he was backing a review of the arts. 
The review commenced publication in Carmel, California, and finished in Provincetown, Massachusetts. By that time, Cohn, who had been regarded purely as an angel and whose name had appeared on the editorial page merely as a member of the advisory board, had become the sole editor. It was his money, and he discovered he liked the authority of editing. He was sorry when the magazine became too expensive and he had to give it up. By that time, though, he had other things to worry about. He had been taken in hand by a lady who hoped to rise with the magazine. She was very forceful, and Cohn never had a chance of not being taken in hand. Also, he was sure that he loved her. When this lady saw that the magazine was not going to rise, she became a little disgusted with Cohn and decided that she might as well get what there was to get while there was still something available. So she urged that they go to Europe, where Cohn could write. They came to Europe, where the lady had been educated, and stayed three years. During these three years, the first spent in travel, the last two in Paris, Robert Cohn had two friends, Braddocks and myself. Braddocks was his literary friend. I was his tennis friend. The lady who had him, her name was Frances, found toward the end of the second year that her looks were going, and her attitude toward Robert changed from one of careless possession and exploitation to the absolute determination that he should marry her. During this time, Robert's mother had settled an allowance on him, about $300 a month. During two years and a half, I don't believe that Robert Cohn looked at another woman. He was fairly happy, except that, like many people living in Europe, he would rather have been in America, and he had discovered writing. He wrote a novel, and it was not really such a bad novel as the critics later called it, although it was a very poor novel. He read many books, played bridge, played tennis, and boxed at a local gymnasium. I first became aware of his lady's attitude toward him one night after the three of us had dined together. We had dined at L'Avenue, and afterward went to the Café de Versailles for coffee. We had several fines after coffee, and I said I must be going. Cohn had been talking about the two of us going off somewhere on a weekend trip. He wanted to get out of town and get in a good walk. I suggested we fly to Strasbourg and walk up to St. Odile or somewhere or other in Alsace. I know a girl in Strasbourg who can show us the town, I said. Somebody kicked me under the table. I thought it was accidental and went on. She's been there about two years and knows everything there is to know about the town. She's a swell girl. I was kicked again under the table, and looking saw Frances, Robert's lady, her chin lifting and her face hardening. Hell, I said, uh, why go to Strasbourg? We could go up to Bruges or to the Ardennes. Cohn looked relieved. I was not kicked again. I said good night and went out. Cohn said he wanted to buy a paper and would walk to the corner with me. For God's sake, he said, why did you say that about the girl in Strasbourg for? Didn't you see Francis? Well, no, why should I? If I know an American girl that lives in Strasbourg, what the hell is it to Francis? It doesn't make any difference. Any girl. I couldn't go. That would be all. Oh, don't be silly. 
You don't know Francis. Any girl at all. Didn't you see the way she looked? Oh, well, I said, let's go to Senlis. Oh, don't get sore. I'm not sore. Senlis is a good place and we can stay at the Grand Surf and take a hide in the woods and come home. Good. That'll be fine. Well, I'll see you tomorrow at the courts, I said. Good night, Jake, he said, and started back to the cafe. You forgot to get your paper, I said. Ah, that's so. He walked with me up to the kiosk at the corner. You're not sore, are you, Jake? He turned with the paper in his hand. No, why should I be? See you at tennis, he said. I watched him walk back to the cafe, holding his paper. I rather liked him. And evidently, she led him quite a life. That winter, Robert Cohn went over to America with his novel, and it was accepted by a fairly good publisher. His going made an awful row, I heard, and I think that was where Francis lost him, because several women were nice to him in New York, and when he came back, he was quite changed. He was more enthusiastic about America than ever, and he was not so simple, and he was not so nice. The publishers had praised his novel pretty highly, and it rather went to his head. Then several women had put themselves out to be nice to him, and his horizons had all shifted. For four years, his horizon had been absolutely limited to his wife. For three years, or almost three years, he had never seen beyond Francis. I'm sure he'd never been in love in his life. He had married on the rebound from the rotten time he had in college, and Francis took him on the rebound from his discovery that he had not been everything to his first wife. He was not in love yet, but he realised that he was an attractive quantity to women, and that the fact of a woman caring for him and wanting to live with him was not simply a divine miracle. This changed him, so that he was not so pleasant to have around. Also, playing for higher stakes than he could afford in some rather steep bridge games with his New York connections, he had held cards and won several hundred dollars. It made him rather vain of his bridge game, and he talked several times of how a man could always make a living at bridge if he were ever forced to. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. Quite the journey covered about the character Robert Cohn, in very few words. Almost no words at all, but boy, do we have an understanding of the man. In my opinion, this is an example of the journalist's skill to capture quickly on the page enough detail for the reader to know and understand what's happening and to whom. But this didn't suit Hemingway's critics. In particular, another Nobel laureate, William Faulkner, called Hemingway a travel writer, meaning his works are just short descriptions, you know, of the first we did this, then we did that variety. But Hemingway responded by saying of Faulkner, He thinks I don't know the $10 words. I know them all right. But there are older and simpler and better words, and those are the ones I use. Quite the catfight. So I can now officially recommend Hemingway as delivering up some great writing, and he treats you, the reader, as someone who can follow along and get the nuance without being spoon-fed on the page. Although a quick word of warning for any millennial or Gen Y listeners. 
Hemingway was writing in the 1920s, and once in a while you will come across a word that we just don't use these days. Don't let that dissuade you from enjoying an American literary giant of the 20th century. We mustn't engage in presentism. That's a philosophy I know is adopted by listener Jack, who made tonight's recommendation. Jack happens to be Jack Henneman of the podcast The History of the Americans, which, if you don't know it, you really need to check it out. It's fantastic. Listeners might be familiar with other really famous podcasts of the history genre, such as The History of Rome and The History of England. Those podcasts went for ages and they were absolutely brilliant. Well, Jack Henneman, who is a pal, full disclosure, and hugs, is producing The History of the Americans, and it's wonderful. It's as detailed as those other podcasts on the topic of Americans. It's amazing that it hasn't been done before, and he's doing a tremendous job of it. Three thumbs up. Recommend. There's nothing but podcast love between presenters here. But join me next time when I explore professional feuds. From Faulkner and Hemingway, to Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, to Edgar Allan Poe and, sadly, just about everybody in his life. Professional feuds invariably deliver opportunities for great writing. And I've uncovered some doozies. So, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please let your friends know about Nudie Reads. Share episodes, follow on Instagram, and you can email nudireads at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for reading material. And a quick welcome to new listeners in Belgium and Spain. I'm going to presume these listeners in Belgium are Flemish, so I'm going to say, Goedenavond. And for the Spanish folks, Hola. Or I could say, Welcome and Bienvenido to all. Thank you so much for listening. Can't wait for Thursday's episode. Till then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.